How about the language of that song? It's almost like before the song, this is my fight song, my blah, blah, blah song. That was Martin Luther's fight song in the 1500s. And I want you to know this book you hold in your hand is largely due to him. It was only in Latin up to that point. Religion was abusing it and saying things that weren't in there. And he read it and everything was about works and all these gifts you have to give in order to earn God's favor. And Martin Luther read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and said, it says in here, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And all these indulgences and all this fear that people are scared of God. That, that's just, they don't have to be afraid of God. He loves them. He wants to cover their sin. He saves them by grace, not their works. And then they wanted to burn him at the stake and burn all of his writings. And so he was taken and hidden away. And for two years, he translated the Bible from Latin into German. And it changed the entire world. Economics, education, everything. The common man, the peasants, the paupers became kings and queens and sons and daughters of the most high God and princes and princesses of the most high God. And the wall was torn down and God was close to people and people could be close to God in a personal relationship with him. It's how close it got. This one man stands in the gap and says, it's by grace you're saved through faith. I, I was reading the text this week and we'll dive into it in a second. I was thinking actually, I was sitting by Eric and I was talking a little bit about um, The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, but I was thinking of so many movies that Jip the storyline of the gospel, because this storyline of the gospel, this narrative of the gospel, plot of the gospel, is what every great story is built off. There's, there's someone that comes to rescue that's been prophesied to save the day and to save humanity from extinction. I mean, I go back all the way to like Terminator. Does anybody remember Terminator here? I mean, that's aging me a little bit. Back in the 80s, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he, came in and was the Terminator. And I didn't understand what was going on, but he came from the future and he knew that her son, John Connor, was gonna come and he was gonna save humanity from extinction. So he wanted to go after her mom, Sarah Cooper. You remember this, to try to kill her so the son that was born of her would never come. And so humans couldn't rise up in this rebellion against these machines. It's the Bible. Matrix. They're waiting for the long-awaited one, the prophesied one, the chosen one. And who shows up? Neo. And he's with this woman called the Trinity, right? And this whole thing is the gospel where he's in the matrix and he's the one that's going to come and overthrow the darkness. Lord of the Rings, same thing. There's a prophecy that a man's going to rise up and he's going to come from the, 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 the men and this guy comes up and he's a ranger, but no, he is the heir apparent, the king, King Aragorn. And even the newest movie, uh, Dune, is much like this. They're looking for a young boy to come up and he doesn't know what's called. His mother doesn't know if he's called, but he goes through a set of challenges and he's the one. And I don't even know that whole story. I haven't read it. I just went to the first movie. I'm like, here it goes again. Same movie, same plot line, different setting. What we're gonna read today is the first mention of Christ after man fell, letting them know, you fell from me, but I'm gonna come chase you down and I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna redeem your mess and turn it into something that I'm gonna use for the salvation of the world. 
starts in Genesis 3, verse 14. And if you remember, last week we ended with everybody blaming each other. It, it was the woman, Lord. I, I knew what you said. She didn't fully know what you said because it was lost in translation. But it was the woman, Lord. And it was the woman you put here with me. So it's your fault too, God. We wouldn't be in this predicament if you had stepped in and not given her to me and would have stepped in and, and shut the sa- sa- you know, devil's mouth. And it's, it's Lord, as Eve shared, it's the devil, Lord. It was the serpent, Lord. He made me do it. And right after this, we come into verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This is where bite bite the dust comes from right here. And I will put enmity or war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I remember reading a book um, a while back called Captivating by John Eldridge. He has a whole chapter in the book dedicated to the special hatred that Satan has for the woman. And I remember he was going into and he said, here's why the woman, there's a special enmity between Satan and her, between Lucifer and the woman. She's under attack, specifically because Lucifer used to be an angel of light. In fact, in, I think it's Ezekiel, no, it's Isaiah, I think 14, calls him the morning star. And then Ezekiel says he was a beautiful one. It's, he reflected the Shekinah glory of God as the highest archangel reflecting the beauty of God. And so when the woman comes along and is, is formed and is brought up, the woman now is the one that bears the image of the beauty of God. Man, the, maybe the strength of God, woman, the beauty of God. And so his hatred for her replacing him as the reflection of God's beauty turns his eye toward the woman and there's been enmity ever since. But he goes on, it says, and between your offspring and hers, Satan's offspring would be one third of the angels fell in heaven with him and became demons. And then her offspring is from her seed. Every generation and the genetics of where this bloodline of Christ, this genealogy of Christ, the savior would come from, he would try to kill that bloodline for the rest of his days until this one comes. He, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You'll strike his heel, you'll bruise him, the church will be battered. You're going to come after him. It's going to you know, be a close call sometimes, but you're only going to strike his heel, but he's going to give you the mortal blow when he finally comes and the Messiah raises up and he strikes your head and casts you down. This is a prophecy kind of within the curse where God's like, I've got salvation in mind and redemption in mind for you. I was thinking about the genealogies of Christ and really the bloodline of Christ all the way from Eve to Mary to Christ. And there were battles down through biblical history as a part of this long foretold war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent to eradicate the birth of Christ. And some of them were very close calls. Satan's intentions to stop this prophecy surfaced multiple times in the Old Testament really started immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. And I want to just highlight some of these stories that showcase the devil's resistance for thousands of years right up to the actual birth of Christ with the purpose of wiping out the bloodline of Christ, thus Christ himself, kind of like the Terminator coming back for Sarah Connor. 
One of the first ones is in Genesis 4 where Cain's murder of Abel as the first two sons of Adam and Eve. The curse was given to Cain and he went away, but the bloodline would be kept intact by the birth of their third son, Seth, even as God said Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Second, this diabolical plan to corrupt the bloodline of Seth for the next 1,656 years leading to the flood became the most aggressive when the fallen angel, Satan's seed, were having intercourse with women. You're going to read this in, in chapter 6 of Genesis coming up. Uh, on, on earth creating the superior race called the Nephilim. They were actually, it said in the text, it was heroes of old, men of renown the Nephilim, and all but one family on earth, Noah's family, feared God and maintained faith. So during the flood, God preserved their family as the remnant to safeguard the seed of Eden and from humans sabotaging their own existence on this planet. Then there's the famine in Egypt and the surrounding Middle Eastern nations threatened to wipe out the entire region and almost wiped out Jacob's family of 70 people and thus Judah's bloodline from whom Jesus, the Lion of Judah, would be born. Then Judah's sons did not have any children to pass on the bloodline or the seed of the woman. So his widowed daughter, Tamar, dressed as a prostitute in desperation for a child and seduced her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her in order to conceive a son, Perez, to carry on the Messiah's bloodline. Did you know that incest was in Jesus' genealogy? Then Pharaoh's decree of infanticide to murder all the male Hebrew babies in Egypt by throwing them into the Nile River and the unlikely salvation of baby Moses who would eventually be used of God to set the Hebrews free and lead them to the promised land. It was a close call. Then the attempted murder of David over and over again for 12 years by King Saul after he was anointed king and God even using the sin of David's adultery with Bathsheba to bring forth their son Solomon who would write the wisdom literature in the Bible and preserve the bloodline of Christ. And there was this one time it was such a close call. Queen Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, she attempted to destroy the royal seed by killing off all of David's known descendants. But Joash, when he's a baby, was hidden in the temple with a nurse for six years by his aunt and was eventually crowned king at age seven when he was brought out of hiding. Any seven-year-olds here, six-year-olds, seven, eight-year-olds? Can you imagine being king of a whole nation at age seven? Six years hidden from Athaliah, who was killing off all the bloodline of David from which Christ would come. Then finally, the infanticide of Herod to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. That's part of the Christmas story as well. Ages two and under in hopes of murdering Jesus, the long-awaited king of the Jews. An angel warned them of this plot and they fled to Egypt until the threat subsided, foiling Satan's last-ditch effort to overthrow the prophecy found in Genesis 3.16. And Satan, even after he was born, continued to attack Jesus' earthly ministry, including tempting him in the wilderness, trying to, to get him to turn on God, multiple plots to kill him before his time that were averted in various cities. And then 
The most direct death blow, of course, the crucifixion of the long-awaited Messiah, prophesied Messiah, which backfired just a little bit when he rose from the dead, conquered the grave, and offered redemption and salvation to the whole world, ultimately doing what was promised 4,000 years earlier in Genesis 3:15. Satan bruised Jesus' heel with a devastating blow, but Jesus stomped on and crushed Satan's head at the resurrection, standing on his neck like a king would in battle after defeating the enemy. Eve's seed would become the world's savior and the hero of history would emerge from so many near-death experiences and he was the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first mention of the gospel. Proto being first evangelion, meaning gospel or evangelism. Unbelievable. It moves on to the next curse or consequence that was given in he speaks to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband or against your husband, but he will rule over you. I talked to my wife a lot about this verse this week. Because I just feel really weird as a man talking about what the woman is sort of experiencing with childbirth. And I believe pain was gonna be a part of childbirth, but there's a severity of the pain that was ratchet, ratcheted up. And, and these, all of these curses, I think it's really good for us to know, these curses are not commands. They're, they're, they're consequences of sin, but they're not commands. Like this is gonna happen whether you like it or not. So when, when they give you an epidural to take away the pain, you're not allowed to because you're supposed to feel that pain by God right? These are things that began to happen. But it is interesting as I studied some of the texts around this and some of the commentaries, the different interpretations of this. And I, I thought I'd give you some of the, my thoughts on those interpretations. Number one, women from the beginning seem to experience a unique burden or pain in wanting children, having children, and raising children. Agreed? The blessing and curse of carrying children creates something akin to a, drama, a trauma bond which can cause an inconsolable ache from the womb to the tomb for those children. Children are often both a woman's greatest pleasure and longing and their deepest pain. I mean, the desire of a woman, even the Old Testament, when a woman could not bear a child and not carry on the seed, she would wanna die. I mean, Hannah, Rachel in the Bible, it's like, just kill me. Like I, such value, such purpose is in wanting a child and then having the child. There's a, a pain in that all the way, you know, from uh, conception and then there's morning sickness and then it's a third trimester and you're like, get this thing out of me. And then while you're getting it out of you, there are the pangs of childbirth as the Bible calls them. And then you birth this child and you have not seen the worst of the pain yet because I've watched my daughters grow up. And it's interesting, as my daughters grow up, my relationship with them as they're growing up and they go through hard things, I'm like, it's good, they're growing up. Just let them mature, let them grow up. In fact, last night, my wife was on the phone with my daughter who's a freshman in college and she was going through some things in her life and she couldn't sleep because of what my daughter was going through because she, the umbilical cord is still attached, so to speak. And I'm like, yeah, they'll be all right. They need to leave our house and just kind of the school of hard knocks, just smack them upside the head. She's like, ah, oh. and Heidi's doing well if the kids are doing well. And she's not doing well if the kids aren't doing well because her greatest pleasure and her greatest pain are those kids. Can I get a witness? Amen. 
And you think, well, once we get him out of the house, I mean, we got him out of the uterus, now we got him out of the house. Why don't you just let him go? The woman's like, I just can't. There's something inside that's connected to them and I feel their pain and ache. And I'm like, baby, I'll take away all your aches. You just let them go. Let's sit on this love seat and take in a Netflix show. Netflix and chill, baby, tonight. And she's like, no, no, no. My mind is just on my kiddos. Do you like how I pulled that re reference, Netflix and chill? That wasn't last night. The Lord has filled me with his spirit this morning. Goes in, your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. Don't kill the messenger. I'm just kind of sharing some of this stuff, okay? What was once an interdependent relationship of mutual submission was immediately replaced with a desire to seek the upper hand in marriage. Can you feel that? The battle of the sexes began. See, most fights in marriage happen because of selfishness and stubbornness. And the goal in marriage changed from serving to winning. And anybody that's in a marriage, if you move from serving to try to win, when you win, you lose. Third, a woman's healthy desire to respect and admire her husband turned into an unhealthy desire to oppose and supplant him. Well, the man's healthy desire to, to rule or to lead and to love his wife turned into an unhealthy desire to dismiss her and depress her. They both become threatening to and threatened by each other in this moment. It's hard for us to even imagine that it didn't used to be this way. But now if you do nothing in marriage, you will drift toward depravity and this will be your story. The fourth one, there seems to be a shift in Eve from the gift of contentment to the desire for control. From a genuine joy to a poisoned comparison of roles and rights, right? And we know that comparison is the thief of joy. Love and trust turned into jealousy and competition. I, I can't speak as a lady because we struggle with this as men too, but I think there's something relational and emotional inside of a woman that can fall prey really easy to being controlling, to comparing yourself and jealousy and to competing in that comparison with other women, competing for attention, competing for affection. There's just something broken in there that is just it just will not be satiated. And I want you to know this just sort of happened. It's my desire for him and he's gonna rule over me, but I wanna rule over him. And it just began this contending in marriage. I love what Jason DeRucci said in Desiring God when he looked at this as a commentary. When the first couple sinned, God told the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Contrary desire and corrupted rule are now the norm for marriages under the curse. Instead of submitting to their husbands, wives desire to control them. And instead of lovingly leading their wives, husbands seek to oppress them or just abdicate leadership altogether by giving up. But both desire in this text and rule are redeemed in Christ. 
Wives learn to align their desires with God's design and husbands learn to rule their households with Christ-like self-sacrifice. And as they do, they display the glory of Christ and the church to the world still functioning under the curse. I think one interpretation of this passage, and I, I think I was guilty of making it when I heard it along the way, is there's nothing you can do about this. This is the way it's always going to be. You're under the curse. The ground's under the curse. Satan's under the curse. The man's under the curse. This is just the way you've gotta be. But in Christ, the reason why he put the proto-evangelion in there is I'm going to come and I'm gonna redeem you so that you don't need to live this way. So how in the world in Ephesians 5 could Paul say, love your wives as Christ loves the church? And how could he say, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord if it's like no I really can't because that curse way back in Genesis 3.15 I'm under the curse I can't do that he's like no 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 under Christ you are redeemed and that that curse is reversed in Christ and you can overcome it through Christ you're not bound and determined and destined to be this way because Christ comes in messes up Satan's plan and reverses the curse in the new covenant isn't that awesome moves to the man and what would accompany manhood. And to Adam, he said in verse 17, because you listened to your wife, it's where all our problems begin, man, right? No, just kidding. And ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It's interesting, I was looking at this and I went back to chapter two and this command by God to not eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden, uh, or to eat, not eat of the one tree in the Garden of Eden, the, the knowledge of good and evil was given to Adam and then Eve was born and he had to communicate her to her what God said. So it's interesting that he knew what God's command was. He, he'd heard that from God himself, passed it down to Eve and then Eve actually listened to the serpent, kind of shifted some words, but he never came back in and said, oh, no, 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 God didn't actually say that says, goes on, it will produce this ground that you're toiling over, produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, and for dust you are, and dust you will return. Just sort of hit me as I was thinking about the other verse. It's about childbirth, and it's about marriage. It's all relational for the woman. You know what he curses in the man? Work. And, and you can't, with a broad brushstroke, saying, oh, that's it. All women are just relational and susceptible there, and all men, they find their identity in work. But I think you can make a strong case that their identity are found in different things, and different things are a struggle for them. And for a man, often it's work. God said that Adam's curse was happening because he listened to his wife instead of obeying God, putting his wife's approval above God's opinion. The woman seems to possess a unique power over the man that very often eclipses God's authority. And to this day, man is cursed with the thought, I'm weak, I don't have what it takes, I'm a failure. When the moment of truth came and I had an opportunity to intervene, I did not, I stayed silent and I stayed passive and I was scared of my wife and I didn't wanna offend her because I like to be liked and I like to be a pleaser and we became people that I wanna be liked and I wanna please you and I wanna be in control and I hate feeling weak. In fact, those are the things I'm learning in grief counseling right now about myself. 
My counselor just kind of is like, I'm going to get in your grill and I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why you deal with anxiety is because of a loss of control that met its peak when your mom and dad passed away the last year and, year and a half. And because you can't control it and you couldn't fix it and you couldn't stop it, there's something in the equilibrium of your emotions that's unsettled. But he keeps telling me, you just, Jason, you like to be liked. And when people don't like you, it just eats at you. Shut up, right? <laughs> And you like to please people. Not only do you want them to like you, you want to please them. And in this situation, I could see that, yeah. And I hate feeling weak. In fact, when my counselor this last week said, I, I really love this, Jason, but when I see your face, when you get sad talking about this, I get very, very concerned for you. And you know what I wanted to say to him? Oh, don't be concerned for me. You know, you, I want people to care about me, but I don't want anybody to be concerned for me as if I'm volatile. It's like, whoa, drop your pride. You are weak. It's hard for you to show. I don't like to be weak in the marriage because I don't want my wife to be like, man, I married a, a pansy. Married somebody that just in the moment of truth, he's weak, his emotions get the best of him. He's really, really passionate, but he's also subject to feeling the pain and pressure and the weight of the world. And this guy's all over the place. I hate being a roller coaster, but guys, some of us are roller coasters. And this weakness just grates at us. I want to know I have what it takes. And God reminds him right there, you didn't have what it took and you didn't step in and you failed your wife. And because of that failure, here's your curse. Second, work was always meant to be hard, but now it was going to be toilsome. And not just honest toil, but painful toil. Like the additional pain of a woman in childbirth after the curse, putting food on the table would now come through painful labor, it says in the text. Toil is defined as intense and incessant fatigue. How many of you get home from work and you have worked and it wasn't like this feeling of, man, I'm fulfilled and man, I'm filled, but you're so fatigued. And it's like, you gotta bring something home to offer and you just have no energy, it's all fatigue. It's like, yeah, there's gonna be toil now associated with work. And instead of feeling fulfilled, you're gonna feel fatigued. Three, not only will men struggle with fatigue and failure, they will also experience the next deadly feeling for a man and that is futility. No matter how good you are, and how good you get, and how much you do or don't do. Weeds overtake progress in no time, and you have to do it all over again. And when men can't fix things, they short circuit. It's like, hello, anger, my man. Yeah, it's like <laughs> this right here. This hello darkness, my old friend, comes over a guy's life. And when they give and give and give, and everything that they actually just fixed fell apart while they were away, it just eats them, grates them, grinds them down to a pulp. It's like, man, I work and I want this wheat to grow, but these stupid weeds. And I need rain for the good stuff to grow, but I need no rain for the bad stuff to grow. Isn't this what it feels like? You go out on your lawn, you got to water your lawn to keep the good stuff growing, but the minute the lawn's not watered, guess what? Everything good goes brown and everything green is weeds, what you don't want. This is the way life is. There's going to be thorns, thistles, weeds, and you're going to like, I have to work so hard just to maintain normalcy. 
Where's the progress? Where's the profit? Where's the promotion? It's like I keep working and I'm knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. And I feel fatigue and I feel failure and I feel futility in my work. And then fourth, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. This refrain from Ecclesiastes chokes out many a masculine heart, especially as they get closer and closer to death, as the text says, until they return to the ground. Men often believe they sweat for naught, living with an ache of frustration that their lives really don't matter. The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation, as Henry David Thoreau said. Frustration, futility, Fatigue, failure associated to work and work without meaning and without feeling like, man, I'm making a difference can wear out a man's soul. It moves on almost like bookends where it talks about Christ is gonna come and he's gonna save you from the curse. And then he gives a model or a symbol in the garden of what was gonna take place 4,000 years from them in this covering. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become mother of all the living. Right in this room, we have sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first killing in the Bible. There's a living animal and the Lord God, let's just say the physical manifestation of God, Jesus went into the garden and they have all these fig leaves on them that they'd constructed, that they'd fashioned around them to cover their nakedness physically. But God was gonna cover them physically and symbolically that nakedness and clothe them in this moment. And so he found an animal and killed the animal and took the skin and covered them with skin. The first sacrifice in the Bible, a life taken, and a life now covered and recovered. Blood spilt to cover the curse. This is the symbol of sacrifice that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus, the Savior. The whole Bible points, points to Jesus, the Savior. The Old Testament to Jesus and the New Testament back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even the Holy Spirit, when I come, I won't speak on my own. I will speak what Jesus, things that are from Jesus and point you toward Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The next time we see God using the symbol of sacrifice is when he asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And that should start to be like, oh, his only begotten son. He asked him to sacrifice his only son. The story seems a little cultish, right? But before you make snap ju judgments, I want you to check out this symbolic story because it's what's called a foreshadowing or an archetypical story of the father sending the son for the salvation of all of us. I wanted to read it in Genesis 22, starting in verse one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region in Moriah. Moriah is the mountain on which it's called the Temple Mount now. It's where the, um, the, uh, the Golden Dome is and the Muslims go there to honor that place. It's where the tabernacle was built. That's why the mount, that's sort of the fight between sort of the Arab world and the Jewish world, that is the Mount Moriah. It's where it all goes down, one of the most holy places for both religions. And isn't it interesting, both religions both come from Abraham. One comes from Ishmael, and that's the Arab side, 
And one comes from Isaac, the one that was born when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was 90 years old. Talk about that sort of bloodline of Christ coming down to the last second where this miraculous conception took place with Sarah. But here you've got Abraham going to Mount Moriah to take his son who he you know, waited till he's 100 years old and now God was like, take him and sacrifice him. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. You almost see in that statement, he believes somehow God's gonna provide a sacrifice and I believe we, both Isaac and I are gonna come back to you. We're gonna go worship, but we're both gonna come back to you, but I don't know how this is gonna happen because he told me to sacrifice my son. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, you can imagine taking your only son out on a mountain together? And he's like, father, yes, my son. Well, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Everything in this picture is Abraham and Isaac. That's the seed through which Christ would come, Isaac and then Jacob. And then he would come from Jacob to David and all the way to Mary. So much is going on in this moment. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear the Lord because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So if you look at the cross, God took his one and only son and gave up his son for us all. But Abraham was like God and the ram was like Christ and we were like the son being offered. And he's like, instead of you, I'm gonna take you off the altar. I'm gonna take that sacrifice on your behalf, which is Jesus. Both are illustrations of what would happen when his son was offered up to die on the cross for our sin and shame. Later on in Exodus, when Moses came and delivered the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt, God spoke to them in Leviticus about making atonement for the sins of the people by sacrificing the firstborn from every flock as an offering and a covering. Chapter one of Leviticus, it says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to, to the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. And you're to lay your hand on the head of that burnt offering and it will be acceptable on your behalf to make atonement for you. Atonement meaning reparation for wrongdoing or payment for sin. So that sacrifice, that covering for the curse or your sin or your shame was 
put into the animal and the animal was, you know, the atonement for you and replaced your sin so that your sin could be forgiven. This is in the Old Testament. Lots of animals died. Bullocks and turtle doves and rams and sheep. That's why it's really powerful when Jesus steps on the scene at age 30 and he reveals himself to begin his public ministry. And when he steps on the scene, his cousin, John the Baptist, who was out preaching repentance and baptizing people, saw him from a distance. And you remember the first thing he said about him? He said this, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, I, and he in his mind is going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the Proto-Evangelium and the bloodline of Christ and almost being snuffed out and all the sacrifices and offerings made for the atonement of sin over and over again. Every year, one priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people. And he's like, no, there's the Lamb of God. This guy was born to die. This boy, this baby boy, almost snuffed out by King Herod, has grown to be a man, has been sort of in the secret shadows. And now he's sort of coming out and he's starting his earthly ministry. And he didn't say, hey, dude, I haven't seen you for a while. Or, hey, it's good to see you. What's up? No, he's like, look, I know your complete purpose is to be the Lamb that's slain for the whole world. I know it from the beginning. It's your time for Satan to bruise your heel. You are here as the Messiah to crush his head on behalf of the nations. And in Hebrews 10, verse 10, the author said, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By one sacrifice, he made, perf made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And in chapter seven, verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer himself day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself, one for all, once for all. Aren't you glad when you came to church today, you didn't have to bring a firstborn without defect, one of your animals, to sacrifice for your sin this morning. And we'd have, I don't know, between last night and tonight, 1,500 animals that were slaughtering out there in the lobby. And then I have to come in here with blood all over me and make atonement for the people. God said, I'm, I'm doing away with all of that. And I'm going to, through my son, cover your sin, reverse the curse, fill you with my spirit and bring you salvation. I'm so thankful, God. The last week, my dog, I'd love to sacrifice him. <laughs> Stupid thing. I'm not joking either. <laughs> Man tried to cover the curse immediately in the garden with fig leaves, hiding in fear and shame until God returned to the garden. And it is still man's instinct to try to cover his sin on his own and his shame through his own human effort, but only God can cover us, only God can save us through his holy sacrifice. Fig leaf phrases I still hear to this day are, I'm a good person for the most part. I've done more good been bad in my life, so I'm good, right? Uh, there are so many other people that are way worse than me. I go to church every week and hopefully that'll save me and I tithe and, you know, I'm in a Bible study and so I'm doing God things like church things. I'm kind and compassionate, 
really benevolent with my life, so I hope God sees that and remembers that. When I die, I hope the good outweighs the bad and God lets me into heaven. I just talked to a guy that said that to me this last week. And that insecurity that I hope the good outweighs the bad, I'm telling you, you couldn't be bad enough or you couldn't be good enough. You need Christ no matter how good you are from a human perspective and a standardization of goodness and badness in our culture. If you've sinned once, you're unholy and you're not getting to heaven unless the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the world comes to rescue you and you accept his sacrifice for your sin as a surrogate sacrifice replacing you on that altar with the ram caught in the thicket called Jesus. Get off the altar. You can't save yourself. Put my son on the altar. He dies for the sake of the whole world. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible that speaks of Jesus' fulfillment of the first sacrifice in the garden to cover the curse was this in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, just like Abraham was planning to do, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die an eternal death apart from God, but have everlasting life, eternal life. My favorite verses that speaks of this salvific exchange is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So all of your deeds before God, the Bible says are as filthy rags before God. They're insufficient to save you. What Martin Luther wrote about in that, that and what he believed in his heart, it's not works lest any man should boast. It comes through grace by faith in Christ. And when he was on the cross becoming that substitute for us, exchange for us, that God was pouring out his wrath on his son for the sin of the world, past, present, and future. It's called propitiation in theology. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And because he became sin, all of God's fury on his one and only beloved son came on his son to punish sin, past, present, and future, so that we could become the righteousness of God. So when God looked at his son on the cross, he saw our sin. And now when he looks at us, when we accept Christ, he only sees his son covering us. Galatians 3 26 and 27 says this, in Christ you are all children of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been what? Clothed with Christ. Just like the garments of skin that were made 4,000 years earlier, now 6,000 years later, we're here and today the offering has always been from the beginning a sacrifice for sin to atone for the curse of that sin. And he became a curse for us. It says in Galatians 3, because cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He became the curse for us so that we could have salvation. And this is salvation. This is the ultimate sacrifice. It's honestly probably the main reason I'm in ministry. I'm certainly not in ministry to keep Christians happy or to preach mamby-pamby messages that have the most sex appeal and curb appeal so that more people come and not offending people. I don't want to offend anybody, but for the offense of there's one way, there's one truth, and there's one life, and no one goes to the Father but by Christ, and my main ambition in life is God bring the lost home. 
Bring the wandering ones home that bear your image so that they realize you've pursued them their whole life and you are the sacrifice or atonement for their sin. And when people become sons and daughters of God, that is what I live for. I go to sleep dreaming about and praying for and woke up this morning, God, we were praying with the band before and we're praying for you and worship and all the distractions. And at the end, Ryder closed the prayer and said, amen. And Sarah was there and she said, oh Lord and, and Lord, pray for people to get saved today. What are we if that's not our high and holy calling? For people to realize, I didn't know all that stuff. There's a lot of Christians here that didn't know what I just shared this morning. So if you're like, man, I didn't know that stuff. They don't even know a lot of this stuff. All they know is Jesus is the answer. And they were lost and now they're found. And they were blind and now they see. And you can be too. And some of you have done religion your whole life and you're hoping and crossing your fingers and wearing a you know, lucky rabbit's foot and you really hope because you have Jesus pictures in your house and a crucifix in your house and because your mom and dad went to church because you were baptized when you were a little infant and you went to catechism and you went to confirmation, your parents can't save you. Our church can't save you. Religion can't save you. Jesus alone can save you. You have to make the choice. You don't inherit this through a generational downline. You don't. Or by osmosis being around a bunch of other Christians. You don't. You have to make a decision to open your heart and say, God, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. I need you to cover my sin. And I need your son to cover me. And he's like, I got you covered. <laughs> I got you covered. People... And the Bible would say it this way when they heard about some of this story, they were like, what must I do to be saved? Well, what must I do? And Jesus said, well, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you declare with your heart that he is Lord and with your mouth, he is Lord. And you don't have to wish you're going to heaven someday. You can know that you know that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you invite him to be the Lord of your life and the savior for your sin, you know you're gonna be spending an eternity with God someday in heaven. You know. So I wanted to give some of you an opportunity to pray a prayer, to cry out to make him Lord and savior of your life today. And I wrote this prayer based out of this message. And if, if you want to pray this, you just read this off the screen and you say to God, this is my prayer to you, my salvation prayer to you. Jesus, you are the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You tell him that's what he is. You're not, he is. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin and my shame. I am a sinner in need of a savior. So I ask you to cover my sin with your son, God. I am yours, Lord. Save me. Fill my heart with your Holy Spirit. I give you my life, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm telling you, in this room, some people just prayed that prayer and invited the God of the universe to inhabit their heart and sit on the throne of their life today. Right? It really, in the Bible, I remember my pastor growing up at altar calls that we would have that no one would actually go to the altar for. 
other than Frank McQuaid. Remember Frank McQuaid got saved in all my 18 years. But my pastor, Pastor Pirelli, would always say, whoever Jesus called, he called publicly, not privately. Like, shh, hey, yo, I know you got saved and I don't want you to feel embarrassed. So like, let's just kind of go talk behind the camel about this. No, everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. And we celebrate publicly in this place when a sinner comes to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, her Lord and Savior. So I just want to just take an opportunity This is not weird for me and it's not weird for our church. If you prayed that prayer and invited Christ to be the Lord of your life and the savior of your heart, can you just raise your hand publicly and just say, I did that here today. I did that here today. Yeah, I see. Just raise it up. Yeah. Everybody stand. We're gonna pray together as we're dismissed. Lord of all creation, God of every single heart here, and a new savior to so many in this place today. We just bow before you and we say thank you that the minute we botched it up and fell on our face nearly 6,000 years ago, immediately once curses were doled out, salvation and promise and possibility and a future and redemption was baked right into the curses. Like, I'm going to save you despite yourself. In spite of you, I'm coming to get you and to save you from the wreckage and to bring you to redemption. And you've done that here today. And we're grateful, Lord. All glory goes to you. We thank you for your powerful word that we hold in our hands to hear of this battle against the bloodline, this battle before the birth that continues to this day as man contend with Satan and God, this sort of war of the worlds that's happening all around us. We just know you're the conquering God. Thank you for crushing the enemy's head. And even as we look at this week and all that surrounds our world, you are in control even when things are, seem like they're spinning out of control, God. So we put our trust and faith in you here. For those of us who know you as our savior, but we're faltering in our faith and our trust of you, we recommit and rededicate ourselves today to the sovereign God who is in control of this whole universe and say to you, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my household as it is in heaven. Your will be done in our neighborhood and our community as it is in heaven. Your will be done in a America as it is in heaven, to all the nations, tribes, and tongues of this earth, may they turn to you, the one and only substitute sacrifice for our sins so that we could have salvation, life supernal now, life eternal, and the life after. We lift you up, our high king today. You are our savior. You are the champion of our hearts. And in Jesus' name, the champion of all champions, we come. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. You're commissioned. Go.